This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Jody Vance sitting in for Simi today, and I write a weekly column for The Orca. Theorca.ca is uh, an online publication, and I get to talk about things where I'm looking for middle ground because we live in such a polarized world right now. And today's article, The Middle, drops on Wednesday, go figure, uh, is talking about drinking in public. I've attended a couple public events over the last uh, few weeks. I mean, uh, you got Greek days on West Broadway, you got Catsalano days on West 4th, you got hats off day, so many great outdoor events. So time to talk about responsible public drinking. I went to the Government of BC website and it says you cannot drink liquor in a public place unless that public place is licensed or designated by a municipality or regional district as a place where liquor can be consumed. However, you may drink liquor in a residence or a private place such as outdoors on your property or at your campsite. And that's where my emoji head exploding thing happened. So I'm like, campsite? How's a campsite different than the beach or a park? Responsible drinking I'm talking about here, not holding a party and selling booze and whatever. I'm talking about throwing down a picnic blanket, having a glass of cider or wine or beer or whatever. Do you think it's time? That's our hot question of the day. Should people be allowed to consume alcohol in public beaches and parks? Yes, they're adults. No, it's inappropriate. So far... We got 10 votes and 80% of you say it is time to allow people to responsibly consume alcohol in public places like beaches and parks. We're going to broaden out this conversation as George Affleck, former Vancouver City Councillor, is going to join us coming up on the program shortly. But I'd love you to chime in on this. So at Jody Vance, you can vote on this at Alan Regan, uh, Alan underscore Regan, excuse me. Our producer has posted this. Uh, Vote and we'll keep you updated on just exactly what the public response to public drinking might be. I don't know. Police on ATVs at the beaches doing laps looking for people with beer in their in their reusable coffee cup? Come on. Now we get back to uh, one of the topics that kicked off our program today. There's a proposal that could ease tax burdens for local business owners that is being tabled. Uh, Vancouver City Council is considering a recommendation that could ease the burden for local businesses. Uh, it's to do with the property tax paid by business owners, which currently is based on the value of what potentially could be built on or above the land rather than what is actually built on the land currently. Joining us is good friend of the show, uh, Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young is on the line with more on this. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Jody. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Glad to have you on today on a topic I know you know very, very well. Um, What can you report on um, as to where we're at with this sort of, I don't know, relief for business owners or those who lease the properties and are handed these massive property tax bills? Um, yeah, I can report some good news because um, this is a council that uh, is really very alive to the issue that's impacting small business um, throughout our city and across our neighborhoods. And that is, as she said, this thing called um, highest and best use, meaning that a property is taxed on the potential for that property, not how it's actually being used. So council received a report this morning from staff uh, recommending uh, asking the province to give us the power to utilize a split assessment, which would enable us to tax and have a different subclass, which means we can tax people on actual use when you just boil it right down to it. Um, And so we did endorse that report. Um, It has to go to the province 
to ask them to give the municipalities the ability to leverage tax. And weren't we at the position where the the provincial government was saying, we'll let the municipalities come to us and tell us what they would like to see happen? Like, is is there a a good possibility that this subclass rule would come into play? Um, I'm really hopeful um, that it will. I I think the question might be timing. There was an intergovernmental working group that was formed, um, and that had uh, senior staff from the Ministry of Municipal Affairs and Housing and Ministry of Finance staff from BC Assessment were part of it, and then designates from some of the Metro Vancouver municipalities, because this is something that's being experienced in a number of cities, not just in Vancouver. So um, the ministries had asked us for recommendations, and this is Vancouver's. We think that this is the tool that can provide the best relief um, the most quickly. So that's what we're asking for, is the promise to take a quick look at it. Um, put mm. some regulations in place by the fall so that we could potentially see relief by 2020. That's what Paul Sullivan was saying earlier, is that hopefully it would be reflected on the 2020 assessment, which would, for all intents and purposes, give as immediate relief as you can possibly give with regard to property tax, no? Uh, I really hope so. And, uh, you know, I, I hope that our, our, I think the province is, is hearing loud and clear that this is an issue and it's and it's a big one. And our businesses don't have time. A year makes a huge amount of difference. A few months makes a huge amount of difference. So I'm really hopeful that they'll be able to move quickly and act, act fast. Sarah, how did the highest and best use taxation practice come into play in the first place? Uh, it's a great question. It predates my time, and so I'm, I'm not a taxation expert. I've been learning very quickly on yes, this Yes, yes, fair enough. Um, yeah, and it's, it's a hard thing to get your head around um, as to how it comes in. It's, it's, a, it's a provincial uh, regulation, uh, and it's, it's a BC assessment policy uh, that was put in place, but I, I, I think that uh, it didn't anticipate the pace of change in some neighborhoods and the rapid fluctuations that you would have in the increase in land values. And I think that's a big piece of this puzzle, because in, in the interviews that I've done with people and asked a similar question, because I did write a column on the orca.ca about this, when Dulux Paints, who had been there on West Broadway for 50 years, closed like immediately. They just said, we can't. We just got handed a quarter of a million dollar tax bill, and we, we, we can't afford it. We can't sell that much paint. So they just shuttered and, and closed, and it kind of it breaks your heart. And when you think, okay, that's a one-story little box of a building, but what it's zoned for now is a 12-story building or a 14-story building. And so that's what the property tax reflects. So the motivation, what my understanding was, is the motivation for the highest and best use was a way to push those smaller businesses into developing those properties and adding density and adding required pieces to the much-needed puzzle and it's kind of backfired as we've seen so many mom and pop shops shuttered yeah, up. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point that you raise because it does break your heart about seeing the heart go out of the neighborhoods and seeing them close and so there is a balance there and that's why one of the sort of recommendations around a split assessment is that it potentially be time limited so that it isn't done in perpetuity so somebody sitting on a small um, use on a larger piece of land like that that could potentially have both housing and small business, mm-hmm. um, that there's, there isn't sort of no incentive to develop that, but there is, it may be a tax limited to provide some relief in the short term. I think another thing that's really important, and you referenced what happened with its highest and best use and the unintended consequences, um, is that we engage our business community um, and our small businesses and folks that are living this every day. So I did bring an amendment at council this morning to ensure that we have a a group, and we actually go out to organizations like the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and our business improvement associations in neighborhoods across the city. So we can talk through all of those implementation examples and not end up with a situation where we're like, wow, 
we didn't expect that, um, and we've kind of really thought through because the devil's always in the details. Mm-hmm. Taxation is complicated, right? But you're very detail oriented. I can say that personally. You helped me get hot dogs at a at a concession <laughs> stand in Kitsilano at Little League. Sarah Kirby Young is a Vancouver City Councillor and makes herself available to us all the time. We do appreciate that. One of the things that that probably is bubbling up a little bit for people is if there is a sort of limited best use subclass. I mean, we we talk in all these sort of legalese and city council terms. And, and, and study terms, tax terms, um, people will be saying, I'd love to develop my piece of property, but I can't get the permitting through City Hall because the red tape is so thick. I might have my plans, but I can't build for five years at least. Is there something coming uh, to council with this new council to try and cut through some of that red tape when it comes to permitting? Yeah, absolutely. That's another thing that's really very much on our radar. And I, I think that's why something like the split class could, could work, because while you are waiting um, for that development and processing, it means that you're not paying a high level of tax on how you're using it today. So that's one part of it. I think the other part is that we need to speed it up um, and get that permitting moving more quickly. So I know that one of the things Council is talking about today, we have a very full agenda, is on our building bylaw. And there's some better alignments that are happening with the provincial building code so we can make it clearer and easier for people and try to expedite that process. It's a big nut to crack, but it's um, it's the other piece that we really need to work on it. And you hit the nail on the head. It starts at council to crack that. And we do appreciate you being there. And I like the idea that you're actually engaging with the small business owners to ask them where they're at because a stressed out, overtaxed, maxed out small business owner doesn't have time to go to the city city hall uh, open house and, and have their say. They They're just trying to hold the two and two threads together they're just trying to keep the door open and they're working really hard yeah we really appreciate your time sarah as always no worries great talking to you thanks for having me that's sarah kirby young vancouver city councillor we've all seen the hollowed out neighborhoods and shuttered storefronts heard the stories of closing mom and pop shops all over Vancouver proper, certainly due to skyrocketing property taxes on businesses the the taxation of the air above property Right? It seems like a stretch, yet that's the reality for so many businesses today. Being taxed on the best use of property. Not what's there, the best use. There's a story in the Vancouver Sun penned by Dan Fumano about a bold plan that could provide some relief. Paul Sullivan is a property tax agent and senior partner with Burgess Collie Sullivan and Associates. He's actually at City Hall as I speak, presenting this plan. Here's our conversation from a bit earlier this morning. Hey, good morning. Uh, so reading the story in the sun today um, got us all thinking, wouldn't it just make so much sense to have a subclass? But for people who don't understand what that actually means, can you give us some backstory on what the current best use zoning is all about? The basic principle is we, we assess properties for taxation and market value. When you establish market value, you look at land, because land is the minimum that a property is worth. So when the city brings in land use policies, such as they did in the West End, that increase densities, it causes the land value to go up. And it goes up to a point where it's a much higher value than the existing use. So effectively, what's happening is you're, you're assessing the airspace above the existing use, because that's the future development potential. And based on the current system, we put commercial tax rates on that development potential. And the result of all this is you have a tax bill that is two, three, or even five times as much as the tax bill will be would be if you just valued the existing use. And that's incredibly so, un- unrealistic for business owners, mom and pop shops and independents to be able to pay for what might be a 10-story building above their one-story shop. 
Exactly. I mean, I think every resident in Vancouver uh, values their community retail and their local independent businesses. And so what the solution here is, is to, to put a different tax rate on that airspace. So we, we, we're calling this split assessments and the application of a business subclass. And the, the subclass means we create a class to, with a different tax rate that gets applied to that airspace above. So, Paul, what would qualify somebody for this reduced tax rate? Well, your assessed value would firstly be based upon its redevelopment potential versus the existing use. Um, and that happens frequently uh, when, when an area comes to fruition for development or more acutely when the city brings in a land use policy increasing density and suddenly the underlying land values become significantly higher than the existing use. So where this will specifically apply will be dependent upon um, a municipality's choice uh, as to where to impose it and what tax rate will be applied to the subclass is also up to the municipality. But from, from my perspective, the business taxpayer has had very little voice in, in the taxation situation throughout all municipalities. And what we're doing here is we're, we're creating a municipal tool which effectively will make municipal government far more accountable to how they tax these small business properties. Well, you just got everybody's attention with municipal government far more accountable. We're with Paul Sullivan, a senior partner of Vancouver Property Consulting Firm, Burgess, Collie, Sullivan and Associates. Many, many people frustrated by uh, this taxation uh, formula, I guess, is the best way to put it um, for in layman's terms, because it has been so stressful for so many businesses. We've seen the stories in the West End. We've seen the stories along with West Broadway, especially with skyrocketing land values. Um at what point is it not left sort of up to the subjective what the municipality thinks? Because many naysayers are people that um, may be coming from a, I don't even know what the, what the term is, from a more suspicious point of view, say, well, this is a cash cow for cities when it comes to collecting big taxes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a cash cow. I mean, you're, you're delivering very little in the way of municipal services to these properties, and you're taxing them based on some future potential. So it's a total cash cow. Um, you know, what, what's going to have to iron out here in the details, and there's a lot of devil in the details. I mean, we're, we're, we're supporting this in principle, um, but uh, once the details get ironed out, we'll, we'll know where, where we land this. Um, for example, you would consider putting a threshold whereby your assessed value is, you know, double the going concern value, then you qualify. Um, or your assessed value is based upon a recent official community plan change that caused values to change. It's a tool that is intended to be imposed on properties where situations are created that cause spikes in value and therefore taxes. So it, it hopefully will be fluid enough that it, it can adapt to those situations and through policy, BC assessment is going to have a difficult job of, of imposing it across the assessment role. So nothing simple in taxation, but there's, that's not a good reason why it shouldn't be done. There's a lot of complicated things in our world, 
and and this is one that needs to be taken care of. Needs to be put on the table. And what about the other piece of this puzzle when it comes to development? I mean, so many people, certainly in, in Vancouver proper, complain about the process of permitting and getting something built. You can buy that piece of property that has the one story on it and want to develop 10, but it might take you five years to get the proper permitting through. Yeah, that, that's a really big piece of the problem. And, and you know, uh, taxes and levies from different levels of government account for 26% of the price of a home these days. So as you add time uh, to the permitting process, you increase cost. And costs are, a portion, are always a portion of what people have to pay. So if we can keep costs down, particularly taxation on development, we can sell homes for less. I mean, development is a competitive industry. Profit is kept in check by, by the marketplace. Costs we can only deal with through good policy, and, and, and this is an opportunity to make a bit of a difference. Um, it's certainly contrary to where the provincial government's gone, the NDP. They've placed uh, additional school tax and speculation tax on the development potential of properties. They're doing nothing but driving up the price of homes. So, you know, this policy is good. It's not perfect, and the devil will be in the details. But we've got to start somewhere to find relief for those businesses that are just papering up their window fronts and walking away because they can't afford it. Where realistically are we standing in terms of how this may unfold? If it does, if it does get a positive reaction at City Hall and moves forward into the next stage and then the next, is, when might we target relief? Well, the intent is that this gets put in place for the 2020 assessment role, which means we need, we need immediate action from uh, the NDP to push through an order in council for a regulation change in the classification regulations. Um, but that, that can all be done. It, it, it's uh, not a difficult piece to do the legislative part, um, and we need it done immediately. And the provincial government has been sitting around for, for quite some time on this file, um, waiting for municipalities to, to bring the solution to them. And that's exactly what's happened. We've had, you know, all the major urban uh, municipalities involved in this solution. And they're basically putting it in the provincial government's lap, and it's time for some action. So, you know, a lot of people got elected this last round by promising to help local independent businesses. So it's uh, time to put your money where your mouth is and, and make it happen. All right. Thank you so much for this, Paul. All right. Cheers. That is my earlier conversation with Paul Sullivan, who's a property tax agent and senior partner with Burgess, Colley, Sullivan and Associates. And he is currently at City Hall tabling this idea. Let's talk housing prices, shall we? Vancouver's housing market continuing to cool. That's in the latest Royal LePage report. The housing market slowly cooling off in Vancouver and condo prices in the city are seeing a price decrease that we haven't seen in, and I'm air quotes, Half a decade. So the average price of a home in Vancouver dropped 4.7% to just over $1.3 million, while condo prices in the city dropped 5.6% to around $767,000. That's a price drop that we haven't seen for this type of housing since 2014. Adil Didani, a real estate advisor at Royal LePage, is joining us on the line to talk more about this. Hello, Adil. Hello, Jody. Thanks for having me. Good to have you. Boy, um, this is a topic that is happening around every dinner table. Everybody's talking about what's the cost, what are the prices, what did the place down the end of the street sell for? Um, 
or the condo. And and when we're looking at the Royal LePage report that is out today, what are we seeing? So the housing price survey, which you re- which you're referencing, what it does it at Q2 numbers. So Q2 2019, which we just completed, versus Q2 2018, and it tells a story about where we are and. Um, as you um, mentioned earlier um, in the intro, condo prices declined for the first time in almost half a decade um, because condos have generally been the first touch of affordability for most buyers, right? Yes. Most first-time buyers trying to get into the market, you know, the townhouse and the single-family home market really not within reach. And so there's been a lot of demand in that segment. One, from first-time buyers. Two, from um, investors because the condo market had seen such a run-up in price growth that uh, a lot of people were speculating and getting into the market. Oh, we're having some issues. We're having some issues with your cell phone, Adil. Would you mind? Should we disconnect and reconnect, Alan? Should we try and do that? Let's... Let's do that real quick and try and get the phone uh, fixed because I want to hear what you're saying. I, and uh, if I'm if I'm sitting in my car right now listening to the Simi Sarah show and it's Simi talking, I'd be like, Simi, ask him about what the numbers were like in 2008, 2009 versus 2019. Because if you've lived in your space, whether it be a condo or a house in and around uh, Vancouver, West Van, North Van, Burnaby, Vancouver, uh, even out into Ladner, Tawas, and White Rock, these numbers have grown exponentially. Like we've all watched our investment grow uh, twofold in some cases. And so a, a 4 or 5% decline in pricing doesn't feel like a correction in the market. Do we have a deal back? All right. I am, Jody. Uh, great. I got the big thumbs up from behind the glass. Thank you, Dwayne. Thank you, Alan. Um, so when people are screaming at their radios right now going, this is not a decrease, Dro- those are not dropped numbers comparatively if we look back a decade as opposed to five years, because we got to take into consideration, as you mentioned, the run-up of prices. Yeah, like every every sub-area, every city and municipality performs differently. For example, you look at the Uber luxury segment in West Vancouver, mm-hmm. um, where we were seeing sales or trades in the 10 to $15 million um, price segment in the past, you know, 24 months. And, you know, the buyers at that price category aren't, aren't there anymore, right? And so that market is certainly going through more of an adjustment than you would say the Fraser Valley or, or Surrey, because those are still relatively more affordable. Like if you look at the breakdown in, um, in, in the market correction, we, we've seen double-digit drops in West Vancouver. We've seen double-digit drops in Burnaby. And uh, we've also seen some meaningful pullbacks in North Vancouver. So when you look at the higher price point markets, we've seen a more meaningful correction take place. And then if you look at um, areas such as, you know, the Valley and, and Surrey already naturally more affordable so fewer or, or less of a price drop. Adil Danani is with us, real estate advisor at Royal LePage. And you know what? I think you just hit the nail on the head, not surprisingly, as you are an advisor on such topics, is that the wave and the way that the market is shifting does very much reflect what most people could predict, that the affordable end of the spectrum isn't moving as much as that ultra high end because we're not seeing the, well let's call it what it is, money laundering happening at the highest of levels. So the people, I can't, I've lost count of the number of my friends who used to be in my neighborhood who've moved to Port Moody, Pitt Meadows, uh, Langley, even Chilliwack and some as far as merit to find affordability and bang for their buck when investing. 
Yeah, there has been a lot of people moving. I, I, I mean, I referenced it, the migration east. People are looking for more affordable options. We've even had a lot of folks move out of Greater Vancouver and buy in the Okanagan Valley and Kelowna. We've seen an uptick in, in um, people transitioning in that way. I think what's interesting to look at, I think in Vancouver, if we put things into context, things can get pretty, you know, much clearer faster. So for the better part of the decade, we've been in this like really strong real estate market where we've seen prices go up pretty much every year um, outside of some minor corrections. And so for the market to pull back here and for sentiment to shift and to see a bit more of a buyer's market, it's actually refreshing. And it's actually uh, healthy for the long-term sustainability of the market because if it's going up in one direction um, for such an extended or prolonged period of time um, without any adjustments, that would be unhealthy and probably put us into a, a territory where we would be concerned about you know, where the market would go you know, a few years down the line. But what we're seeing now is normal, natural, and healthy. Right. And being a born and raised Vancouverite in the areas and multiple locations that my family has grown up, the immigrant family that that sort of put a stake in the ground in one spot, what that was worth 50 years ago and what it's worth today, there has been no correction that took it below what it was 50 years ago. There's, We keep talking about the bubble, the bubble, the bubble. Are we looking at a bubble and a burst and a significant drop? Or is now a time that maybe some of the people on the sidelines looking to get into the market might say, okay, you know, a 4.7% or 5.6% drop in a condo price, for example, in Vancouver, is a good time to get in? Or are we still waiting for maybe that shift and correction to continue lower? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think what we're going through now is a policy-induced correction, right? We've right. had policy from every level of government, municipal, provincial, federal, with the stress test. Um, um, and so, you know, when you factor in the plethora of, of new policies, uh, including the foreign buyer tax, I think the Vancouver market's held up pretty well. And I think that should tell people kind of the narrative of where we're heading. I think whenever we've had a correction in, in Vancouver real estate, so when we had one in 2012, we had another one in 2016, 2017 with the introduction of the foreign buyer tax. And now what we're going through now, today, uh, it's when you look back at, at history, it's proven to be a buying opportunity. And so right now, buyers have an upper hand in the negotiations. Buyers are finally in the driver's seat and can negotiate prices um, take their time right. making decisions versus having their back up against the wall. And even on, if you look at the new construction end of the market, which has been always a hotbed for activity in Greater Vancouver, there's now a lot of really great incentives developers are offering to allow buyers to get into the market. Um, we even have promotions where it's live free for a year, mm. you know, large discounts off the purchase price. Um, we haven't seen this in, I would say, the better part of at least two years where um, developers are starting to offer incentives, which is encouraging for buyers. Yeah, and you actually can have an inspection done before you purchase a property now. Yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> you go in and go, yes. here's my top number. Hopefully <laughs> yes. that's as much as the other 12 people bidding on this property. It's just quite something. Thank you so much, Adil, for giving us your perspective on this. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Jody. That is Adil Danani. He's a real estate advisor at Royal LePage talking about possibly a little correction in our market. We're going to continue our conversation here now about whether or not people should be allowed to drink alcohol in public places like beaches and parks. Um, Today on the Orca, the Orca.ca, you can find my column on this topic. Uh, Also on the Orca.ca, you can find a podcast called Unspun that 
features yours truly and the gentleman sitting across from me, former Vancouver City Councilor George Affleck. Hello. So weird to be in this space with you instead of our little closet that we do our podcast That's right. From. I'll meet you at 2.30. <laughs> as right. soon as I'm off the air here, we record another one for this week. But this is a topic that uh, requires some fleshing out. And I absolutely use you as inspiration on this because what was it? A couple of years ago that you and I sat down yeah. right when you were leaving office. Your thoughts but on... The last hurrah that I tried to But do. I loved it because you <laughs> threw down. You're like, people, come on. The data is clear. You're actually, your polling that you're doing online right now is, is representative of what the polling that the City of Vancouver staff did in a report to us saying that about 80% of residents are cool with drinking in public places in a mass level. So what we're doing, the poll that we're doing is the hot question of the day. Alan Regan, our producers, put it up. I've retweeted it. You can go to at Jody Vance to see it. The question is, should people be allowed to consume alcohol in public beaches and parks? Yes, they're adults or no, it's inappropriate. So 80% saying, yes, you're dull. Bring it on. You lived in Europe, didn't you? I did. And how did that go with regard to drinking in public, George? Well, I went to Denmark as a high school student on a student exchange when I was 17. And the first thing I, re- I, I was faced with was at the school we were at. This is a high school. There was beer in the uh, coolers, uh, the, the machines, the pop machines. And you could have beer. And I'm like, what is this all in about? In the high school? Yeah. Okay, wow. Uh, I know. Bless the so, Danes. Uh, you got to love this. Of course, good Tuborg. So, you know, you can't get drunk in Tuborg. Uh, so, yeah, that was my first in- in- induction. And then, of course, the beaches. Uh, with you know, they, no problem. Just bring out a beer and have a beer on the beach. No big deal. Like whatever. Uh, and you can even walk around and have a beer if you want. Uh, they just don't like you, you getting wasted. Uh, well, that's and- just it. The uh, Catalano days this past weekend. Yeah. Because at Greek days a couple weeks ago, I was there. Everybody, yep. All right, everybody's walking around with a beer. Nobody's causing problems. And I was surprised at how easy. I mean, easy. I, it, there was no ticket system, which I hate. Nope. Yeah, uh, you just walked up five bucks for a beer, which I thought good deal. Yeah, and you just got the beer straight out of this from this person. They were everywhere. The booths were everywhere. It was fantastic. Catalano days. No, no. I know, they you have to, to line up to get the. It was the mother of all lineups to get too, the beer. Same thing. It's brutal. But what good does that do? That's where the drunken disorderly happens. When you go in, when you wait forever to get in, you go in, you power back some beers until you're like, okay, we're good, and then you walk the. You see the guys mostly, some women mm-hmm. that just like power drink in the beer garden. But, but if you're just strolling along with a beer in your yeah, hand... It's, hard, it's really hard to get, you know... What's the pushback here, George? Why is it taking so long for our city to grow there, up? There's this puritanical... Uh, certainly with Vision Vancouver, I always, surprisingly, for a party that was supposed, supposed to be the youth party, they were very puritanical when it came to this. We, we fought on this issue throughout my time there. I tried to... Because the provincial government changed the regulations a long time ago, about six years ago. And so they made it much more easy. It's up to the cities themselves to decide how alcohol is consumed consumed in the city and how many places there are and all those things and the province is just up to you and so I was really pushing for more places to buy wine and beer um, I, I pushed for the whole drinking the, the lounges the in the uh, drinking in the um, wine uh, the wine uh, in the beer um, craft, places, beer. craft beer places yeah, yeah. I pushed for that but every time I pushed for something Vision would push back on it and I never understood why what they were all about and they were very nanny state kind of government and I think that's the problem when you have a nanny state kind of approach to governance. You alcohol fits into that criteria. They see it as an entry level drug, uh, and it's only a slippery slope to before you become, uh, you know, a crackhead or something. It, it, it's it's you know I understand that's kind of what the Vancouver Coastal Health comes and says to council. They will come and say no 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 don't alcoholism loosen, don't costs loosen. Gonna, money. We're all going to yeah. die. You know don't do it don't do it. And I'm like really seriously. And they will say examples of alcoholism in other countries where Quebec where it's much looser and. But I don't know. I think there's a point where you go, come on, loosen up. 
I mean, really, I, I find this binge drinking much more prevalent uh, when you have restrictions. You go, it's funny because in Sweden, which, where I lived as well, have very strict regulations on alcohol. And so you have this, what I noticed when I lived in Sweden, this is some years after I was in Denmark, they, this, there is this binge mentality. They go to the liquor store and on a Friday and they buy all their wine for the weekend. They drink it all by midnight on Friday, you know, because they're done. Cause they're, they, and then they can't go, you know, at that time, the, the liquor stores were only open on uh, Friday, till noon on Saturdays. It was crazy. Yeah, they load up. Load up and yeah, get loaded. And, and so here, here's a piece of the puzzle. You just gave me a bit of an aha moment because I was wondering, how is there such lax legislation or whatever it's called rules in Yarrow where there's the liquor store gas station and two of them in one block and then a liquor store grocery store on that same block? Because it's up to that municipality. Yeah. That's the aha moment you just gave me. Because if you go to Richmond, you go to the hair salon, they'll offer you a glass of Prosecco. Having a glass of Prosecco in the hair salon, and let me tell you guys, girls take hours getting their hairs did. Uh, you'd like a glass of Prosecco if you're going in after work and whatever. It's illegal in Vancouver to do that. It's ridiculous. I know Naramata has a, a general store. It's the only store in Naramata, And it has alcohol right there. And, and I don't see a lot of chaos in Naramata. No. And so I think there's this mentality that uh, exists in the city of Vancouver specifically, and it seems to be across the region, that uh, that we need to be careful and we need to be sort of a nanny state. And it's if this is just a slippery slope to alcoholism, and I just but don't agree. But the alcoholics that we all, we've all had that disease touch our lives in mm-hmm. one way or another. So nobody's saying, oh, let the, uh, the whatever alcoholics. Those that I know who have a drinking problem or are struck with this disease are going to find their liquor no matter where it's sold. This isn't about making it more available. Yes, it's it, a disease. It's a have. disease. Yes. So let's treat the disease and help the people who have that issue, that addiction. And let's talk about you know the elderly couple having a picnic at Jericho, being able to have a beer without getting a $250 ticket. Clearly the people lying on the blanket oh, eating chips are not... And they're drinking their wine anyways. People are bringing their wine in, in shifty containers. Oh, of course they are. And actually Amanda... I mean, they are. Uh, yeah, Amanda, my partner, has a purse that actually has a hidden... It's a bladder. Compart- <laughs> compart- has a com- <laughs> compartment in it for wine. And uh, it's amazing. It fits two bottles of wine, so it's... Cat's uh, Lano Day is walking along. A uh, couple of friends and I, we did not have travelers, as we call them, but coming the other way, we're clearly... Of age, four guys, clean cut, walking the street, looking around, taking in the local artisans, whatever. They had solo cups. They'd stopped at wherever Darby's on the way, whatever. They had solo cups, cops on bikes, and you can't hold the cops accountable because they're just doing their job mm-hmm. to one thing. But they literally were like, hey, what's in that cup? And the guys are like, nothing, and kept walking. And the cops got off their bike and en masse grabbed these guys, dumped out their cups. It's like, to what end? They weren't causing any problems. Meanwhile, I go to the downtown east side, (laughs) and where are the cops? Well, uh, the cops are trying really hard on the downtown east side, but can't get help Mm -hmm. for those with addictions. Yes, that's the problem. There's a whole other thing going on there. And, and I think that tying those two together uh, and, and is, is challenging. And, but, you know, I got a lot of hate from people when I came out, to, and I'm sure I'll get some today. Hold that story because I'm going to sure. open the phone lines because you can give George hate right now, right here if you want to. 6042. <laughs> so used to it. <laughs> open up those lines. 6042809898, star 9898 on your cell phone. Chime in. What do you think about this? Should people be allowed to drink at beaches and parks in, in Vancouver? Like, is it time or are we just not grown up enough here? We're not mature enough as a city. I think that was how that was posed to us when last it was thrown Mm -hmm. down. We're mature enough, though, if it's sold through concession stand 
run by the city. I think the province would make more money if they just sold it in more spaces because it's highly taxed. Uh, you can find George on Twitter at George underscore Affleck. It's his thing. Uh, people are voting on our hot question of the day, whether or not uh, it's time for people to be allowed to drink in public areas like beaches and parks responsibly in Vancouver. Uh, Michelle on Twitter. Um, I'm going to edit this for uh, arable content. Okay. There were a couple of profanities thrown, but she said, um, look around your station is a few short blocks from 20 blocks of pathetic cesspoolness of open drug and alcohol use. Get a clue and grow up. We're not a European tourist mecca. We are blue collar rain coover. And uh, Mark said, as long as the goofs who wreck it for everybody are dealt with quickly and effectively, mm-hmm. Las Vegas is in a dry county, but only the idiots get dealt with by the police while the tourists can walk down the strip sipping a mudslide. 604-280-9898, yeah. star 9898 on your cell phone. Let's go to the phone board and you can answer sure. uh, a question or two. We'll start with Gary in Richmond. Hi, Gary. Hey, how are you? Good, Thanks. Thanks, Jody, for taking my call and guests. Uh, many, many years ago, you used to be able to drink in the public parks and the provincial parks and all that kind of stuff. And the, re- the reason I remember that, and I'm probably dating myself here, is because after the weekend was gone, we used to go there and collect all the beer cans and bottle cans we could find, and we'd fill up our vehicles full of them and take them all back and get the money back. And then the government came along and said, well, uh, we don't want this anymore. There's too much litter in the parks. And so they put it into effect that it was law. You couldn't drink in a provincial park anymore. And then all the cities followed suit and said, yeah, no public drinking. Well, I'm sure that we've come to that point now where we could go back to that. And I know a lot of people that do it anyway, and they just keep it in a little cozy or whatever they do with it, a flask, you know, hide it in their coolers. But even if people did throw their cans and bottles out, there's enough people out there that are collecting that stuff as a second source of income living in the lower mainland. You wouldn't have to worry about the litter. I think the only thing you'd have to police is the people that got too inebriated having too much of a good time. Because we wouldn't, we wouldn't want that in Vancouver. Isn't that the way it goes? No, fun Vancouver. That's right. Thanks, Gary. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I think that the dealing with those the, the people that are the hooligans, as Gary Robertson like to call them, um, that's where the, the issue has to come down to. And, and, and for the alcoholics that we talked about earlier, that's another issue altogether. I think that Vegas is a great example that uh, the person tweeted. That, that's a good example. If you've been to Vegas, you're allowed to wander around the city. And Vegas has people from all across some North America, all kinds of walks of life. Yep. And you walk around there, you feel completely fine. And you, there's some people who get really drunk, but of course they're taken care of or they, they're dealt with. And I think that is uh, an example of where you can do it and you can uh, offer that. All right, let's go to Sean in North Vancouver. Welcome to the program, Sean. Hey, Jody. Um, I hear this on a regular basis. I'm a police officer and I patrol beaches. Mm-hmm. And uh, they say, oh, this year are we going to legalize the alcohol? And I'm like, well, I don't think so, but uh, I vote no. And the reason I do is a large percentage of our problems in policing, um, if not society, are, are alcohol-fueled. I've got nothing against alcohol, nothing against drinking. Fair. People are, people are drinking all over the beaches today as it is. It's in a Starbucks cup, a thermos, a water bottle, whatever. You mean you can tell that, Sean? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm being glib. No, I hear what you're saying. So right now we have a ticket for $230 for open alcohol. And that is a good ticket. That's a great leverage for us to keep everyone who is drinking under the radar and acting responsibly. But we need that $230 ticket for open alcohol, one open beer, 
um, for those who won't or can't. And if we lose that, we're going to have far more problems with alcohol, impaired, sex assault, violence, the whole bit. Okay, what, do you thanks, do when, what do you do when things escalate, actually, Sean? Just if you're still there. No. Uh, the, uh, that's the thing. I, I, I'd be curious to know. That's always the issue, and the police talk about that. It's things, there's the people who get really drunk and disorderly, but there are rules and regulations for that. There's ways you police that. There's ways you find that. You jail people for that sort of thing. There are ways to, uh, to, to manage that, and I think that you have to separate the two between drinking on the beach and a family having a glass of wine and people who are getting drunk and wasted and, and being... Uh, so his point, I think, was we need to make that money off the ticket in the deterrent to deal with the people who are drunk and disorderly and out of hand. And I think that's putting the cost of policing the, the ne'er-do-wells, the hooligans, uh, on the people that are just sitting I down. Know, why not charge a- $1,000 for people who are rough being hooligans? Why not? Why there not? <laughs> I don't get it. That we makes got, no sense Time for two more calls or three more calls. 604-280-9898. We're going to Jim in Langley. Jim. Hello. Hello. You're on the air. Yes, uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, I noticed in your lead-in you changed the premise somewhat, and I think that change in premise is pretty telltale, because at the outset you started talking about responsible drinking, and now you switch to just drinking. I have no problem with, with responsible drinking. The issue is how do we keep it responsible? How do I go to the beach with my family, my girls, and see somebody next to me get drunk and start making comments or doing things that are inappropriate. I'm with you, by the way. If that's a nuance that you heard, Jim, let me tell you, that is not where Mm -hmm. I'm at with an 11-year-old child, but I'd way rather have somebody sipping a beer next to me than smoking a cigarette next to me at the beach, and that's happening. Well, I I would agree with the cigarette, or if it was pot or anything else that wasn't confined to their own space. Right. But somebody can sit next to me and drink a beer and not bother me in any way, shape, or form. No, if somebody sitting next to me smoking a, a cigarette or a pot does bother me. I can get high off somebody else's pot. But the point I'm getting at is that responsible drinking is not the issue. It never has been. The issue is how do you keep it responsible? And that means either you listen to what that policeman said or you let him make an arrest. And then you go all scaly because he made a judgment call and arrested somebody. I didn't go scaly on anybody. Did you go scaly? You and one speaker have been advocating obeying only the laws that you agree with, even in today's (laughs) context. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate you know, that. If, That's Jim from Langley. Go, George. You got you a go minute. To, if you go to Rec Beach, and I, I've, I've been there, I admit it. Yeah. Um, the alcohol is sold on the beaches there. It's very. It's all, of course, illegal. There's also drugs sold, but you never see problems down there. To be honest, I've been there and down there quite a few times, mm-hmm. and generally, because of there's this culture of allowance, and the police do come down and do fining, and so everybody there is this culture of watching each other and policing each other, and if people do get out of out of hand. Everybody else kind of goes, hey, come on, that's not cool. Yeah, you're going to wreck it, guy. You're wrecking it for you're gonna all wreck of it, us. Lady, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. And I think that is the maturity piece. And that's what happens in Europe, which mm-hmm. we referenced off the top. And I love that everybody's chiming in on this. And they're very, very passionate points of view about how we can't do that here. And I believe we can. As a born and raised Vancouverite, I, I think we can grow up to this 
level and look out for one another and report and it when it's wrong. I think 80% of the people agree with us. I mean, I think majority rules in this one is, come on, people want this. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. That, that should be an album, George Affleck. <laughs> 78% say, yes, they're adults. 22% of you know it's inappropriate. That's our hot question of the day. You can check it out on Twitter, at Jody Vance. Uh, call our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. George Affleck, Vancouver City Councilor, thank former. Ex, yes. former. Thank Retired. you for being with us. I'll meet you later to yes. do the podcast. Thank you. Unspun on the orca.ca. Jody Vance in for Simi Sarah and joined in studio by the hardest working woman in radio. You know where you love her, Nikki Reitmeyer, CKNW contributor on the John McComb show in the mornings every single day, bringing the wit and the fun and the knowledge. Also host and producer, along with John O'Dowd, of This Is Why, a podcast that you must be downloading and subscribing to. Just trust me on that. It's and incredible how I get that all in one business card, Jay. It is remarkable. And, <laughs> and awesome teammate, working, supportive, lovely, awesome. Uh, yeah, it goes on and on and on. But today you've got a really interesting topic for me that kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies on the flying side of things because I'm a nervous flyer. Yes. I mean, you could also add to my business card title, my introduction, Known Traveler, because I, I do. I travel for hobbies and, and I travel for fun. I love it. I love to get on an airplane and fly somewhere across this great world of ours. I was very curious to learn, though, that you yourself are afraid of flying. Yes. I was uh, flying with uh, my brother, uh, headed to Barbados. I had gone Vancouver, Toronto, Toronto, New York, New York, Miami, Miami, Barbados. Oh and between New York and Miami, we were in a 727, a smaller plane, uh, single um, aisle and just two on either sides. And we flew into what was building into a tropical storm over southern Florida. And our pilot came on and said... First, he said, flight attend- attendants immediately take your seats. You've never seen people sit down that fast in your life. And then explained, we had flown too far into the storm to fly out of it. Oh so we were goodness. the last plane to land in a tropical storm in Miami. And I'm here to tell the tale, so bless those pilots. Uh, but it was the most terrifying 45 minutes of my life. So do you fly now? I do. But how often? When, when forced to. Well, when warranted, you know, we do trips. I went to, you know, Maui with my family. I've gone to Palm Springs to see my folks down there. I fly to Toronto to see, you know, for business. I, I travel when I must. And I just, I just go through the whole process thinking everybody on this plane knows it's safer than a car. I, I've gone through that whole process. The pilots don't want to die. I just... I just still have, have that block. To, yeah, I have to freak out. Yeah. But when you talk about carbon footprint being associated with flying, I will win the gold star in carbon savings with exactly. flying. <laughs> you can pretend, you can say it's because you're altruistic. I mean, reality is, yeah, you're, you're just kind of afraid of flying. I'm super scared. Well, what yeah. do you think about this? There's a woman in England. Her name is Anna Hughes, and she's a part of what is called Flight Free 2020. She is encouraging people next year to go the entire year without flying. I think you probably wouldn't have a problem with that because you're kind of scared of it anyways. But it depends, though. If somebody needs me and it's a flight away, I'm getting on the plane. Right. So if it was recreational flight, can you not fly for 365 days recreationally in the name of going green? Okay, I can see that with the caveat. If Nikki's stuck in Guatemala and I'm her only phone call, I'm flying to Guatemala. Please come and get me. That's what would happen. (laughs) Well, there's lots of people saying, come on, I fly for business. I have to fly from Vancouver to Toronto or Calgary to Vancouver and vice versa. A lot of people have to fly for business. They have family that live around the country. And, you know, it does sound very privileged when you have this woman, Anna Hughes, who 
says that she hasn't flown in in ten years and says, "Well, I don't need to fly." But I mean, yeah, you live that close. You know, you live in Europe. You live that close to other countries. If you want a vacation, you can jump on a train or you can drive your car through the channel, and you can go to these other places in Canada. I just can't see us getting by without airplane travel. That's Anna's bubble. No matter how bad it is for the environment, yeah. and I don't think that that is is so crazy. I'm sure that there are some people that disagree with us, and I would love to hear from you on uh, on the phone line, but I just can't imagine Canadians going without airplane travel, and I don't think that we're quite ready yet to start protesting airplane travel when we look at the climate change I argument. think there should be no shame in air travel when needed, when warranted, for sure. Like, to go that far and expect a zero tolerance for every... Let's open up the phone lines for this. Maybe people want to chime in on it, right? Six. Four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight star ninety eight ninety eight on your cell phone. We will open the phone lines in the next segment. But you know, carrying on here, like you're digging deeper into this story. Is it a zero tolerance piece for? Because I mean, when when I think of green, I think okay. Well, how about Elizabeth May? Right, she flies. Absolutely, she's a Green Party federal Green Party leader. She she flies. It, well, it would be so hard. For any politician who, on the one hand, may be uh, touting the benefits of addressing climate change to also not be campaigning across the country via airplane and and doing those two things together. I don't think Elizabeth May is taking a cruise, though. I mean, sure. I'm sure that there's, you know, certain precautions and things that she's not doing. Uh, Richard Attenborough, whose voice, of course, you're very familiar if you've seen uh, any nature, planet, many, many nature documentaries. Uh, He was on record recently by suggesting that perhaps air travel should be more expensive to deter people from flying. Something similar to a sin tax that you would put on cigarettes or alcohol to discourage people from consuming those products. Private jets. Let's make everybody carpool, plane pool. I you think- have to go commercial. You can't go in your one single jet. If you're rich enough to be able to afford a private jet, I'm pretty sure you're not too worried about a sinner's tax. Right. On well, that's the jet isn't travel. that the Leonardo DiCaprio thing that he was all about carbon footprint and then he flew to Cannes on his private jet and everybody attacked him for it and he's like, I'm Leo DiCaprio. But I'm Leo I'm DiCaprio and I have the money to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because. You know, that's the other side of it, too, is people flight shaming you. And you mentioned the word shame earlier. So we're hearing about this now concept of flight shaming. So if a celebrity like Leonardo DiCaprio who does talk a lot about the environment and, and good on him for doing so, uh, if he takes a flight somewhere, there will be people on his social media account who then comment, well, you know, here you are talking about climate change, but you're catching an airplane uh, here, there and all over the world. However, we're now starting to see that more with regular folks. And they're saying this could be a growing trend where, you know, if you post a picture of a trip that you've gone on, or I post a photo of a a vacation location and destination that I've gone to, uh, and I obviously take it an airplane to get there, that someone could perhaps post on my social media feed, well, do you know what your carbon Carbon footprint footprint is is because you traveled to this destination? Flight shaming is what they're calling it. I have not experienced that personally myself. No, Uh, But yeah, I mean, you look at the future and you go, I could could sure imagine it happening now. (laughs) The trolls are coming after you, Nikki Reitmeyer. Yeah, so flight shaming, they're saying, is the new uh, uh, the new way to address people who contribute to greenhouse gas emissions by flying. Well, I I don't know. How does Vancouver feel about that? BC, how do you feel about that? 604-280-9898, star 9898. Do we start with flight shaming? 
Or should we look around at some of the other modes of transportation? Again, I go back to the cruise lines. I didn't realize how dirty the fuel is in those those beautiful white boats that park themselves at our beautiful harbor. We are concerned with tankers and pipelines and orcas and how it'll be impacted and sewage coming into our water. Like, there's a lot going on that we need. Yeah, John Cooper's coming on later to talk about Vancouver's sewer system and why the beaches are closing four times the E. coli levels that are considered safe. I know there's a lot to, there are a lot of things to start, you know, putting putting a, a bow on and making it green, a green bow. But I think Should you could argue, argue well, yes. you could argue that there is a difference between cruise ship travel and airplane travel because we we really could, as a world, as a society, get on just fine if there was no cruise ships. Sure, we enjoy them for vacation purposes. Yes, yes they add to the economy and so forth. However, in the grand scheme of things, we don't really need a cruise ship. We do, however, need airplane travel Agreed. because, again, there's so many people who fly for business purposes uh, and, and and so forth to visit family or abroad pleasure. And, or for and pleasure allowed. and or for vacation and of course you're you're allowed that as well and as canadians unless our government wants to step up and add the infrastructure that we need to get from one city to the next such as train transport proper yep. train transport Imagine. not like we have now then then i can't possibly see canadians getting on board with something like increased airfare in order to discourage people from air travel and yeah i think that is a flawed way to go put put the onus on the the citizens then it's an elitist thing it's like well if you have enough money then you are able and able and capable for travel and as you were saying about anna hughes the woman who wants 2020 to be flight free she does have access to that unbelievable european train system and we're talking about a very well rather unsexy topic sewage Sewage in Vancouver. I wrote a column on the orca.ca last week on this topic. And, you know, it doesn't matter where we go in the world. People talk about how beautiful Vancouver is, where the ocean meets the mountains, the orcas that come frolicking into False Creek. We ooh and ah, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. And then we realize what they're swimming in. Oh, my gosh. We got news that the Sunset Beach E. coli counts were off the charts, like four times acceptable levels. And and one of my friends who shall remain nameless, her son uh, is a university student, works on one of the ferry little things down at Granville Island boat, boating, bringing people around. Uh, well, the guys started dropping like flies, stomach bugs, barfy, everything. Turns out they weren't washing their hands after pulling ropes and eating their lunch. Like it's making people sick now. It's it's bad for it's bad for the environment. It's bad for us. It's bad for tourism. What about the people who don't read the newspaper and don't realize that the beaches are high in E. coli and let their babies frolic in? The, come on, we're better than this Vancouver. So we threw it out there as a topic of discussion, and lo and behold, the champion of things that need attention, the one and only John Cooper, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner, always at the forefront of these very important pieces of our local puzzle, joins me now on the line. Hi, John. Hi, Jody. How are you? I'm so uh, glad that you are so on top of this. I'm following you on Twitter, and every time you're like, I'm putting a motion forward, here's what it looks like, here's what we're doing. Can you let us know, in sort of layman's terms, what our sewer problem is in Vancouver? Sure. So first, I'd like to say, you know, our staff, our city engineering staff do great work. You know, it's technical work. It's difficult. I think they're they're tremendous. They've got a huge job. There's about 2,117 kilometers of sewer and drainage mains in Vancouver, 90,000 sewer connections, 45,000 catch basins. It's a big job. Yeah. So in the last 10 years, the city of Vancouver has replaced 83 kilometers of combined sewers, 
and they've replaced it with 166 of separated sewer mains. That sounds great. But over the last 10 years, we've only replaced 0.6 of our present system. Right now, our sewer system is only 50% separated. Now, so for someone who doesn't know separated uh, and, and needing right. of divide, it's, it's the rainwater? It's the rainwater and sewage should be separated, yeah. and the sewage goes to the treatment plant and the rainwater, it's a lot easier to, to get rid of. Yes. But when they're combined, when you have a high outflow, they, they mix and they get pushed overflowed into our waterways. And right. We have five outflows in False Creek alone, Jeez. and I think that's the big False Creek problem. So that's raw sewage, John. To, that's raw sewage going into False Creek. Is, five outflows. So well, 0.6% mixed with rainwater. So it's okay. not all raw sewage, but it certainly is enough putting raw sewage into the creek for sure. So yeah. the urgency of fixing that, um, I understood, was uh, initially the, the in, entire uh, repair or redo or the separation would take until 2050. That's right. So 2050 is what the plan is. But actually, when you look at the numbers, we're not achieving that. So we've done 0.6% of the system every year for the last 10 years, right? So Mm -hmm. now we're at 50%. But if you take 0.6 and you divide it by 50% that's left, that actually works out to 83 and a third years to finish. So this 2050, unless I'm not very good at math and I'm, you know, I'm not a mathematician, but it should be fairly simple to figure out. I think we're falling behind even our goal of 2050. So why and are I we behind? Yeah. How, I why, really hope I'm wrong. Why is this not more of a priority? Sorry to cut you off there. I'm passionate about this. I want the beaches open. Why aren't we further ahead on this? Why is, is it just not a high enough priority um, for well, our municipal government? Yeah, I think we've had a lot of talk about greenest city over the last 10 years. You know, the former mayor was a big proponent of all things green, but we we do a lot of things around buildings and we don't want to have gas barbecues and we don't want to, you know, we do, it seems to be things that aren't necessarily moving the ball forward, but you talk about pollution in our waterways. Mm. That to me is, you know, you know, I was born in Vancouver. I love it. I'm, you know, swimming at the beach at Jericho since I was a kid and, and, and kids and, and all over. And it's just, to me, it's shocking that we aren't farther along on this. And I'm, I'm trying to, through the park board, uh, get asked for the city to say, what would it take to make it happen? You know, uh, there may have to be some trade-offs, but I think people in Vancouver, and I think I think it should be a federal election issue. I think we should be looking for federal funding to get this thing going. It's 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 disgusting, actually. It, I 100% agree with you. And as we watch, just as I'm sitting here in the CKNW studios at Georgia and Granville, I can see the Blade, the Vancouver House. That is a massive piece of density, there is going to be some sewage flowing out of that. It is right above False Creek. We are well, adding say, towers. Yeah, We're, I would say not there. I mean, downtown is pretty well 100% separated. So where the where it's not separated is various areas across the city, for instance, some of the Fairview Slopes and that sort of thing. So the new buildings downtown, they are fully separated. Okay, good. I don't want to alarm people. No, that's not, good. I didn't nothing. know that. That's great. So that's I'm, great. You're informing. So in the areas that it's fully separated, we're fine. What I am also worried about in areas that aren't fully separated, and we build a new building, let's say somewhere else in town, and it's all set up to be hooked into a separated system, and there is no separated system there, where does that go? It goes into the old system, and that increases flow again. Right. So it's a it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, you know, I know Sarah Kirby Young at Council is working on a similar motion 
we're really hoping to move the ball forward and get people get the information. I, I think people need information to make a, ju- a judgment, and then let's move this forward. John Cooper is a Vancouver Park Board Commissioner, and I uh, just in our conversation right here, having really not known the where's and hows of exactly like what areas this would affect. I think if you told the people in the areas that have the combined systems, you know what, there's going to be upheaval in your neighborhood for the next year while we fix this. The people in those areas would say, okay. Yeah. Well, for instance, in the last 10 years, there have been separation projects on major arterials like Burrard, West Forth, Alma. McDonald's going right now, right? Dunbar and yeah. Iowa King Edward. Yeah, they do a great job. I mean, this yeah. is a big job. Jo- this is a big job. Totally. I think we have to give our staff the resources they need yeah. to get this going. And, and because, you know, even for me, 30 years is a long time. But if it's, if it's longer, I think we should do it in 10 years. I mean, the, we're, we're at the anniversary this year of the moon landing. Yeah. I remember I said, I said, youngster, you know, JFK said they would put a man on the moon in 10 years. I think we should say we should be able to clean this up in 10 years. Let's set a goal. Let's get going. Well, you saved the Bloedel Conservatory, so I think you can do anything. Well, I'll try my best. I had a lot of help there. <laughs> you I did. had a lot of help. I'd You're very, very good at spreading that. You're a very humble gentleman, but I tell you what, having the voice out there trying to get the activation of the people is the key and you do it in such a non-confrontational way you know praising city engineers before getting into the numbers game here what can we as citizens do to try and amplify your message is there something we can do is there a way to contact well, I, yeah i think people can always uh you know write an email to marin council uh, at vancouver.ca they can do park Park PB commissioners at Vancouver.ca. Um, you can you can call three one one and let people know that you're concerned about this. I think there needs to be really people paying attention, and I hope uh, I really thank you for for jumping on this from a media perspective. And I know Linda Steele was on the other day, but I'd like to see more information out there so people could say, okay, now I understand. It's not you know. We've been sometimes blaming the boaters, and they all have holding tanks in their boats. I've heard people say, "Oh, it's the you know, it's the geese that are in yeah. Falls Creek. That's the problem." Well, they all maybe contribute, but I think when you're talking about combined outflows of of, of big volume of of water and sewage, I mean that has to be where the problem is, and I think we got to get on it. That's something we can get on right away. John Cooper, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you very much. That is John. You too. John Cooper, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. We're talking about the sewage problem. Vancouver.ca. Go to the city website. You can email everybody from there with one click. Time to talk a little bit about the controversy that's been unfolding the last number of days. The Vancouver Pride Society withdrawing UBC's invitation to participate in the annual Pride Parade. There's been sort of a a domino effect or... more like a landslide effect on this topic. It's gotten way off course. And we want to bring it back to the root of this. And and in order to do it, um, I'm connecting with a, with a gentleman who I met a number of years ago. He was actually a caller on a radio program that I was hosting um, on the topic of SOGI 123, which is um, the educational tool to teach inclusivity to students of all ages. But like all the way to elementary school students. I have an 11-year-old. I love that he is learning SOGI 123, but there are people who are harshly against this. And I had a guest on about it. It was all about Barry Newfeld and Chilliwack and, you know, just 
really out there posts on Facebook. And, and, and Brad Dirks was one of the callers. And he was such a great caller that the next day I had him on as a guest. And we've, full disclosure, become friends, basically, social media and to chat with and kind of a touchstone when it comes to talking about advocating on behalf of specifically kids in the LGBTQ2 plus community. Uh, Brad joins me on the phone right now. You're, you, you've got a transgender son and you, yes, adv- you advocate on his behalf ongoing and, and passionately so, but you kind of find yourself a bit in the center of a storm here, don't you? Um, I do. Yeah. Um, to, just to be clear and transparent up front that I always speak from the perspective of a parent of a trans and I don't speak for or on behalf of the LGBTQT community. Um, so I just want to make that clear, but, um, as a parent of a trans son who obviously is underage and, and obviously not able and willing to speak up, that's what parents do, right? Yes. So that's what I've been doing for the last couple of years. And you've been doing so in such a, uh, such a strong and respectful way until you are attacked by people who just can't handle how your family works. Your family actually works and works well. You've been called all kinds of names. Like I follow you on Twitter. I see the trolls coming at you. I see your Facebook page. And sometimes I do reach out to you by DM and go, don't feed the trolls, Brad, because they're trying to get a rise out of you. But with regard to what we're seeing happening out at, uh, with UBC and the space there being rented to Jen Smith, the history of Jen Smith, his history, um, is one that is just sort of coming to light for many of us. For many listeners, they're like, I know something about the Pride Society withdrawing the invite to UBC. What's that about? Um, but you actually have quite a history with Jen Smith. Can you give a little bit of a synopsis of who he is? Well, I've never met the person. Um, I went to the UBC rally. Um, I was there. Um, I, I don't recall ever being to a Jen Smith event before, but apparently I, I, I was at one in Surrey. I thought it was a different speaker because I tend to go to a lot of these things when these types of uh, events that are spreading misinformation occur. So I'm, I'm always willing to drop whatever I'm doing in my personal life and attend these things. So I've just been following what this person says and spreads on social media and he he goes by he he generally um, tends to talk about kids a lot. So he's always spreading information about the medical system and how trans kids are being exploited by big pharmaceutical companies and and all these things. And that and and the misinformation being spread um, um, is dangerous in my opinion because there it's getting spread to the average person in, in the public and it stigmatizes our family. It stigmatizes and shames families like ours when actual credible peer-reviewed information isn't being spread. Right. I mean, the, the standards of care and best practices that are well-established with, you know, the Canadian and the worldwide medical, pediatric, and psychiatric community are all very clear on, on this. But yet that information isn't what's being spread. So it's, it's basically prompted me to continually um, stand up and speak out about this. So when you say, Brad, when you say Jen Smith goes by he... Is Jen Smith a trans man, trans woman? You know what? I, I, I would never disrespect anybody by telling them that how they identify is wrong or incorrect. No, no, but I just, just for general I, I really public, know. I don't know either. And that's just it. Yeah. So, so somebody named Jen Smith who has a, a message wanting to be delivered, and I kind of 
when when I dig deep in this, I I kind of look at it sort of as the anti-vaxxer kind of movement because what some right. of the things that I've read and heard, I've never seen him speak, but I've definitely seen posts on social media, and I'm thinking, why right. are you so mad at Brad's family? Like, why can't Brad's family just be Brad's family, and everybody who lives differently than you do, Jen? Like, why why so mad? You know what? I don't know. I, and when when people like me or, or organizations out there that are kind of supportive of, of trans kids and whatnot stand up and call it hate speech, um, they deny it. But yet they they have a lifetime ban on Twitter for hate speech. Um, you know, every pretty much every venue out there that you can rent it won't rent to this person because of the, the content of the presentation, um, including Trinity Western University and Douglas College. Um, so they wouldn't rent. That, they wouldn't rent it out. They won't. Right, no, but UBC so did. Yeah, UBC did right. um, under the. They said it was basically freedom of expression, which, you know, when you rent, when if if somebody was to say a horrible, terrible, hateful thing to an individual, that's not hate speech. But when somebody rents a stage and purposefully and intentionally spreads misinformation that puts groups of marginalized people in harm's way or discriminates against them or spreads information that you know can make them even more marginalized or you know at risk. To me, that's hate speech, and that's clearly defined um, under the Human Rights Act. So there are there are both sides to this in in terms of it being hate speech or just hateful um, presentations, whatever you want to call it. But certainly, Vancouver Pride Society has a right to hold UBC to account for renting out that space to Jen Smith, and that being something that Vancouver Pride Society d- disagrees with. I was speaking with Sarah Hyde, uh, one of our producers, um, on her opinion as a, as part of the LGBTQ community, and and she said, you know what, Vancouver Pride started as a protest. So if Vancouver Pride wants to protest what UBC is doing corporately, then so be it. The, the fact that I, one of the nuances that I didn't realize is that the UBC Pride group is invited to the Pride Society. So it's not all of UBC and anybody associated with UBC is being punished here. It's just corporately speaking. It's like saying that Bank X can't have a float in the parade. You're not coming in. That's right. You know, so it's, just to just to boil it down to what it is, because there's a lot of misinformation flying around. So that's one of the reasons we wanted to have you on here today, Brad. I appreciate it. I do too. And good luck to you. And we'll follow along on your story. And if there are any updates, because I understand that this has gotten uh, like a moth close to fire with how the heat is coming at you. And I hope it calms down a bit for you. You deserve to enjoy your summer with your family. Thank you. All right. Have a good day, and thank you for making you yourself available. Brad Dirks, father of a transgender son and uh, an LGBTQ advocate based in Langley and a friend of the program.